Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we're going to be at this morning. Verses 1 through 19. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to, to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech, that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the speaker and the speaker foreigner to me, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen, to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For he may be giving thanks well enough, but if the other person is not being built up, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we don't gather here this morning to have a perfect production, a perfect performance. We gather here this morning to worship a perfect Savior. So every flaw and every imperfection, God, that happens, I pray that somehow through it all you would use it for your glory and for our good. We thank you that we are able to gather together as saints, that we are able to gather together, that people can come here to hear the gospel, to hear the good news. We praise you that people who are not yet Christians can gather here to hear about who you are, Father, and what you've done through the ultimate story of redemption. We pray this morning, God, you would minister to hearts that are anxious, that are fearful, that are worried. We pray for those that, God, struggle with mental health in this season coming up, that we could come alongside of them, love, support, and encourage them. But I pray they would remember right now, even as this is prayed through the power of your Spirit, God, that we are not what we struggle with. We are not our conditions. That in Christ we are children of God defined by the work that you've done for us, Jesus, and so I praise you for that. I pray that in the season ahead that you would lead us what it looks like as a church family to, to love and serve and build up one another, to be selfless, 
God, I know that uh, myself and many others can feel the weight of the winter season and um, all that's ahead and all that's coming. And, and for some, the holidays are uh, um, a time of celebration. For some, it's a time of mourning and of loss, God. So I'm just praying that you would comfort many this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God that speaks. Thank you that you're a God that has saved us and called us into a family. Thank you that you are a God who is in control and in charge and is faithful of every moment, of every circumstance, of everything, to every detail, every day. So as we sing about laying it all down, God, I pray that we could lay down our worries before you now. I pray we could lay down our grief before you right now. I pray we could lay down our bitterness, our strife, our anger, our resentment. I pray we could lay down everything knowing that the hands that we're laying them down to are good, sovereign, and loving. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> We've been in this series titled Saints in Society. And simply put, it's, it's, it's the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, and it's called the letter to the Corinthians. And so we've titled this series Saints in Society for this reason. We're looking at how belief impacts behavior, okay? And so people don't behave their way into becoming a saint. You believe your way into becoming a saint. So when you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, your identity as a child of God is actually a saint, which means holy or set apart. That's not based upon your behavior. It's based upon belief and solely belief, by grace, by faith alone. Now, what Paul is saying that when you've been given this uh, new identity as a saint, this is what it looks like to behave. This is what it looks like to live in society. And so again, we're not slid over the commands that say, do this and you can become a child of God. We are made a child of God by grace. And then it says, uh, then he's saying, this is what it now looks like to live and to behave as a child of God. And so when we get to something this morning like prophecy in tongues, which is, like I said, a bit obscure, a bit interesting to talk about that many people have different opinions on. And I'm confident that some of you in here today and some of you listening at home today will disagree with my position on this, that what we would remember that Paul did is at... In, in chapter 12, Jake preached on uh, spiritual gifts, and today we're talking about the spiritual gifts again, but, but in the middle of that, sandwiched between that, was this chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. And so what Paul is saying at the center of these gifts is love. And, and if you have all the gifts in the world, but you don't have the love of God and then a love for one another, it's vanity, it's nothing. And so he's saying this is what it looks like now with these gifts with this identity and now given these gifts to live out of these gifts in love and in service. And so we have to understand that, that, that this chapter is just on the heels of what we just preached on with love. But now as Paul's talking about, this is, what we, this is what it looks like to exercise spiritual gifts. Here's what today's main point is. The saints build up. The saints build up. Throughout this, we, uh, it's four times that Paul uses that phrase, to build up the church, to build up the church, to build up the church, to build up the church. Paul's emphasis is, for a saint, what your job and role is, is upon conversion, upon putting your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you're actually given a spiritual gifts or gifts by the Spirit to use those gifts for building up. Our tendency, though, is to be very selfish. And though Scripture says, you will know that they're my disciples by their love for one another. Many remove themselves from church family, remove themselves from using the very gifts God has given them to build up the community and family that God has placed them in. Why? Because at the core of all this, which is going to be hard, so hang in there with me till the end, listen with me till the end, because it's going to be a bit difficult, but at the core of, of who we are, we're very selfish individuals. And so I think what it looks like and what Paul's urging to build up means to move in the direction of being selfless, but actually to move to the only one in all of creation who was selfless, Jesus Christ. 
even things that we do oftentimes have a selfish motive to them. Though they might benefit others, they'll benefit us as well. I've sh I shared this story, I think a couple years ago, but our youngest daughter, Brooks, growing up, she had uh, her, I think it's called like a wubbanub. Maybe I'm butchering that, but I'm pretty, is wubbanub? Wubbanub. My wife nodded, yes. She, 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 she had a wubbanub. But what she would do is she would somehow pry open her stuffed animals, and she would take the stuffing out of her stuffed animals from a young age, and then she would fill up her wubbanub, her binky, with this stuffing. And she would pack it with her finger in there, and then she would take a little bit out, and she would rub her upper lip with part of it. Okay? I can tell you our whole family has weird corks. <laughs> really weird ones. We won't get into them. But this is what my youngest daughter did. And that's mild compared to the rest of us. So, so she would do this. And we knew in the middle of the night what had happened when she started crying. It normally wasn't that she lost her webinar because we, <laughs> we got to where we just chuck a ton of them on the bed or in the crib. So it's like she could always find one. But it's that she lost her thizz-thizz. That's what she called it. The fuzz was called the thizz-thizz. And so she would be screaming because she wanted her this this. <clears throat> so one time we went for a flight, and on the flight, the one thing we forgot to bring with us, we, got, we, we had the webinar, we forgot the this this. And she was relentless. And on the flight, you're, you're nervous because other people, but honestly, my, I love my daughter. But the, <laughs> sounds bad. She was very whiny, and the sound that she made just like made me cringe. And so I don't know how else to say that. It just like drove me insane. And so I was asking my wife, I'm like, we don't have any this this. And, she, and so there's no this this anywhere on the plane, and our daughter's freaking out. So she, we have like this little, I don't know, it's like a book thing. And in that moment, my wife and I are trying with all of our might to get this thing open because we know there's some, some, some this this in there. And we're, we'll do whatever it takes to get the tzitzes out of there and into her hands. And I can't get it. And so, uh, like, I'm frustrated. And so I grab my teeth, and I'm willing to lose teeth for this endeavor. And I bite it. I rip it open. My wife's like, how did you do that? And I'm like, I felt like an animal. But I was like, I, I think I could chew through steel bars if it meant her stopping and me having some peace and quiet. And, and to the outside world, it looks like, Rick went through all this out of a deep, deep love for his daughter. That was part of it. I was losing my mind. So selfishly, I just wanted her to stop. And I didn't want everyone on the plane to hate us. And so I think oftentimes the things that we do, even though they might look selfless, can even come from a very selfish motive. And so I think at the core of what Paul's addressing this morning is that and is a lot of that. So again, I'm content to say that I think that some of you guys will disagree with my stance and position on these gifts and what Paul means by them. I'm okay with that. If at the core of what we believe is that Christ stands central, and that is our fundamental belief, is in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I think these are areas we can debate on. I think these are areas that we can disagree on. So with that, the saints build up. In verses 1 through 5, believe what Paul is saying. Stating, he, stay, uh, he states his thesis statement in verse 5. He says, look, now I want you to all speak in tongues. That's it. What does Paul want? This is his, this is his uh, thesis statement. Keep reading. But even more to prophesy. There you go. What does Paul want? I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more I want you to prophesy. What, what does he go on to say? Look, 
The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Now, you have to understand, Paul understands our identity is in Christ. He is pushing you to see your identity as a saint, holy and set apart. But what Paul is saying is there's, there's, there's a level to this and to these gifts to where they impact one another greater. And so what he's saying is that, yes, I desire for you to speak in tongues, but what I ultimately desire is for you to prophesy. Then we're left going, what exactly is prophecy? Because everyone has a different opinion on what prophecy is. But Paul doesn't leave us unclear on this. Paul actually tells us in these verses here, if we look here, in verse 3, he tells us exactly what prophecy is. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people, look, three things. Oftentimes we're left going, what does this mean? Paul tells us in verse 3. For the upbuilding, which means strengthening, and encouragement, and Consolation, which means comfort. What is the gift of prophecy? It is using our words to strengthen, build up, to encourage, to exhort, and to comfort one another. That's what the gift of prophecy is. Now, in the Old Testament, there was an aspect of prophecy which was foretelling. And, and we could actually know that a uh, prophet or prophetess was real by what, what, what they foretold actually coming to pass. And so Deuteronomy 18.22 actually says this. It says, when a prophet speaks... In the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need to be afraid of him. Is that right? You need not be afraid of him. Okay. So what he says. That's foretelling. There's an aspect where prophets foretold. And, and so they said, this is what's coming. But a lot of even what we see in the Old Testament was foretelling. They did the same thing we see in the New Testament. They told God's people to repent, to turn. They called him back. They provided comfort. They provided encouragement and exhortation. They did the same thing. What's oftentimes focused on in, in, in very charismatic churches is this prophecy, is this being able to foretell of something that's coming out ahead when oftentimes Paul is saying what foretelling is is actually you using your words and the tongue that God has given you to upbuild or to build up, to strengthen, to comfort and encourage one another. <clears throat> what is up building? Speaking the truth in love so we grow into who we are in Christ. What we are called to do as saints and as children of God is to actually remind one another of who we are as a child of God. So we are called to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are, look at this, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are called to speak truth in love, which means this. The gospel isn't just this moment of conversion. The gospel speaks to our marriages, to our friendships, to everything in life. We are called to point one another to the work that Christ has done and show how that speaks to all of life. We're called to encourage one another with the gospel. Second, he says encouragement, which the other word for this is exhortation. And so we're called to spur one another on. Here's the reality, and this is what I've noticed in, in much of the church culture today, is that we actually don't want to be exhorted and, and to be encouraged to live out of who we are in Christ. What we want is someone to come alongside and be a cheerleader for us. And so when someone does exhort us, then what happens is people come back and say, I'm just being judged. Or someone's doing this. Sometimes people say hard things to you because they actually love you more than they love themselves. It's easy to withhold saying something difficult because oftentimes I want someone to love me or like me more than I love them enough to let them walk towards something that is destructive. 
And so oftentimes we want someone just to be a cheerleader for us. But if we actually want to grow, we need people to come into our lives and not just encourage, that's a big important piece, but also exhort us and challenge us. In fact, Ephesians 3 says we're actually supposed to do this every day. Ephesians 3, or Hebrews 3.13 says this, but exhort one another, look, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, um, Hebrews 10.25 says this, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why and how do we build one another up? You build one another up by meeting together. You build one another by stepping into community. You build one another up by stepping into a church family. You build one another up by showing up to actually give and love and serve and not just take. What God has called us to is to be a family. And families can't just survive when, when, when people are just purely taking and purely consuming. And so what we're called to do is to show up and to exhort one another every day and, and encourage one another. In the season ahead, I'm telling you guys, what we need is our church family to take this serious to text people, to call people, to encourage people, to exhort people to do this daily. Third, he says, comfort. The, the gift of prophecy is for comfort. There's no greater comfort right now and in the season ahead than being found in Christ, than having someone look at you and tell you that regardless of what you've done, the shame and the guilt that you fear, regardless of the mess of your life that you've created, regardless of your sins, that through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are washed, clean, pure, and holy. That is where we get our greatest sense of comfort from, is that God is with you and God loves you intimately. He's involved in everything going on in your life. Notice this, that in these verses, one through five, Paul's not saying, hey, pastor, hey, shepherd, hey, elder. He's talking to the church. It's actually the whole church's job to practice the gift of prophecy. Now listen, some might have the gift of prophecy, which means it comes more natural for you, but this is something that all the church is called to practice and do. We're all called to strengthen one another. We're all called to encourage one another. We're all called to comfort and exhort one another. And so when we show up on Sundays, I've been pushing this and saying this a lot, but when we show up on Sundays, we even call it a Sunday service, which is a bit unfortunate because we treat it as just a service that we get something from. But our call to show up is, be, is to say, Lord, lead me to someone today that I can ex encourage, that I can comfort, that I can pray for. Again, Paul is talking to the whole church here. What is tongues? Well, <clears throat> we have this entire chapter that parses out what tongues is. But let's look at a few things of what's going on. First, and this is the part where some of you guys might disagree with me, either on, on, online at home or in here, is what was going on in Paul's time in the Greco-Roman culture was this, is that people would get together and they would get drunk and really drunk and then what they would do is they would dance and they would uh, dance themselves into just a drunken stupor and that's what they would do. And then what, what actually happened is that that's how they connected with their gods of their culture, is that they would, they would dance themselves into this frenzy of, of just drunkenness, so much so that their spirits left their bodies to go and commune with the divine. And so that was the richest and greatest form of communion you could have, as to where you got so drunk and were dancing so much that you lost control of your body and your spirit escapes and it goes and communes with the divine. And during this event, what happens is a lot of babbling and just a lot of words. So I'm gonna say babbling a lot today. And I want you to understand that, that, that I believe that what Paul is talking about is just a babbling tongue, not a common language 
is, is, I, don't, is I believe what Paul is addressing. So what they would do is they would babble like this. Here's, here's a bit of my concern. Is what we see much in charismatic churches today looks a lot like Kondalini worship, which is a form of worship found in Hinduism, okay? And so this is going to be informational. But uh, much of what we see today looks a lot like Kondalini worship. And here's the thing. You could say, well, maybe they're following um, something that's been happening for 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years in Christianity. Kondalini worship's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? Here's what happens during Kondalini worship. When, 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 when people worship their false gods, and what happens is they bark like dogs. They dance like crazy. I'm okay with that part. David does that in the Bible. What they do is they act drunk. What they do is they start shaking and convulsing without control. What they do is, is they have some sort of like manifestation of something like supernatural. So like certain people have like a chi type power and they can knock people down with their hands and with coats or whatever by just swinging it out. People start laughing uncontrollably. You can look this up. Look up Kondalini worship. You can look it up on YouTube. And they lose control with laughter. A lot of what we see taking place in charismatic churches today looks just like that. That's scary to me. Because the fruit of the Spirit is joy, patience, peace, love, and self-control. So when we completely lose control over something we're doing, but yet saying this is from the Spirit, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, something I think is wrong there. And so I think what Paul is, is, is addressing is, look, what you guys are doing looks a lot like what's going on in Corinth. And today I would say a lot of what I see looks a lot like what's happening in Hinduism. And I think we need to, be, we, we need to honestly and graciously address that. I think, and this is where you guys will disagree, I think the gift of tongues has had its cessation, or it's had its end, and, and it ceased. Paul says something like this in Chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So with two, he says pass away. With tongues, he says cease. Now, again, here's why I believe this. Beyond what we see Paul writing about tongues in the New Testament, we don't see Peter, James, or Jude writing anything about it. We don't see Paul any, uh, uh, with his uh, later letters readdressing this gift, or here's how it's used. We see very little about it. We, see, we don't see him in his pastoral epistles saying, here's this gift, here's how you do it, here's how you exercise it, and here's how you use it in your private prayer language. We don't see that. And then a, a, as we stretch through church history, Clement of Rome is one of the guys we can look to who wrote a letter to the Corinthians in 95 AD, and he mentioned nothing about gifts. And he mentioned nothing about tongues. If it was such a big deal, Clement of Rome mentions nothing about it. Justin Martyr, who has written, I mean, he has a big library as one of the early church fathers, does not mention it. Origen, who was weird and had some weird beliefs, <clears throat> doesn't mention it. Chris Ostom, who in all the books I read, he's quoted the most as an early church father around 300 to 480. He said that it has ceased and it can no longer be accurately defined. Augustine said this, that its time has passed. And there's only one exception to this with early church fathers, is uh, Montanus was his name, and he was a heretic who believed that he was one of the few prophets that actually God spoke to him um, as, as one could speak divine. Now, we don't see a lot of it in church history, but fast forward to like the 1800s, and we see this group called the Shakers that came out of the Quakers. I'm sorry if this is information overload, but I think it's important for you guys to know a little bit of this history. So, 
the Shakers came out of the Quakers. And so they were actually known for shaking during their worship. They have some very interesting beliefs. There was a group of them that, that practiced tongues, I think, like we see here. And then there were smaller groups from Roman Catholicism that practiced it. But we don't see a lot of it. Until what? The turn of the 20th century. And especially the, the, the 1960s, what happens? A lot of our culture turned towards individualism. And so, of course, what's going on here is, in, in Corinth, is flashy, showy, look at me and look at all I can do. And, and I'm not saying this is all of it and, and this is what I see, but it seems to me with a culture turning so individualistic that it seems like ripe, ripe, ripe soil for something like this to grow. When everything in our culture is about me and what I can do and let me show you, let me prove my worth, that's a lot of our culture now. It is striving for independence. And so it seemed like it had plenty of soil for something like this to just blossom and grow in our culture. And so we've seen something like this take off and grow through recent years. Here's, here's, here's the thing. People say, this is my private prayer language, and, and they use this verse to support this. I would say, I struggle with that. Here's why. He's writing to a local church, not telling you how to use this in your private prayer life. He's writing to a local church saying, this is how you build one another up. He's going on throughout the rest of these uh, around 10 verses to tell us that if it's just babbling and it's just an unknown language, it doesn't actually build anyone up. He goes on to explicitly say that the gift of tongues is actually for the non-believer. It's for those who don't actually know Christ. For the believer, this is why you need prophecy. And so Paul is going on to say that it's not just a babbling language. It's not just babbling because that babbling only does two things. It draws attention to yourself and doesn't build up. And maybe that sounds harsh, but, but I believe that what Paul is addressing here is, is, is a bunch of people that have become so self-consumed and selfish that what they want to do is be showy and show off. And so they're like, look at this guy, the way that he babbles so loud. I want to be able to babble like that and do that as well. And so now they're getting in this conflict about these gifts. And they look under the Christmas tree and see your gifts and say, I want all of those. And what Paul is saying, what you should strive for is to build one another up with whatever gifts that God has given you. Now, for some of you guys, it's not good enough, and so let's get a little bit more technical and look at verse 2 with me. I don't know if it's hot in here or if I'm just uncomfortable, but I'm sweating. Verse 2. <laughs> yeah. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. This is gonna, where it's going to get technical, Okay. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. In the NASV, which is a more literal translation, and it's a better translation in this sense, spirit is actually lowercase here, okay? And for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Whenever there's no article, generally, generally, it's translated in the Greek as a God. So what I mean by article is whenever it says the God, that's what we call a definite article. Whenever it says a God, that's called an indefinite article, okay? Typically in Greek, whenever there is no article, then it's translated with an indefinite, which means a God. And so some believe, I'm not the only one that believes this, scholars believe that actually what is being communicated here in a better translation is, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to a God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in his spirit. And so Paul, in a sense, and I think throughout the letter he's been sarcastic, 
but, but even in 16, I think he's being sarcastic. Is, is he saying, look, you're doing this in this private prayer language or whatever it is, but, but you're doing this, you're speaking to some spirit or a God, but no one's understanding what you're doing. And so what is the point of it if it's not for building up? Again, how do we make this practical for us today so it's not just a sermon on these gifts? Regardless if you agree with me or disagree with me, what I would urge you to, uh, to, <clears throat> to press into is this is that we're still called to practice prophecy and we're still called to build one another up regardless of where you're at with this belief here we're called to practice and we're called to build practice prophecy and build one another up let's keep moving on to verse six he says now brothers if i come to you speaking in tongues how will i benefit you unless i bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching Look here, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, um, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. So I want to say this. It's important for what I said prior with tongues. Before we move on here. The other times that we see tongues being used, and I believe what it actually is, since I'm saying what I think it isn't, you guys need to know what I think it is. So I'm saying I don't think it's some unknown vernacular, some unknown language, some unknown babbling. I think it's actually the language that people spoke. And so in, in uh, uh, Acts 2, 4 through 6, what we actually see is this. At Pentecost, we see this. We see they, they began to speak in tongues. Okay, so uh, verse 2. And suddenly came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So it's going to define what this is for us. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay, so Jews and then every nation. So people from all over the place. They're painting the picture for you here. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Why? Because each was hearing them speak in their own language. Okay, so I believe that what he's talking about is language. And, and if you want to go more nerdy, then, then do this in your own personal study. But look at the King James translation of this. And every time that we see the word tongue appear in verses 1 through 16, in the King James version, the King James translators caught on to this. But every time you see tongue appear in, in the singular, they put unknown tongue or unknown language. Every time you see it in the plural here, it's just tongues or language. And so even the King James translators caught on this, that every time that Paul is talking about tongue, he's talking about this babbling you're doing. But every time he's talking about tongues, he's actually talking about people's common language they were using, okay? 6 through 12. In, in Corinth, there was a music theater that held 20,000 people. So Paul appeals to them on music. And he's like, hey, since you guys love music, Go here with me. Imagine this with me. Since you guys all love music and you guys all go to the music hall where there's 20,000 people here, imagine this. Imagine if you go there 
and you go there to hear instruments playing and someone just has a flute and a harp and they're just hammering away on it and they don't know what they're doing. Will this make any sense to you? When people use instruments and they're just blowing on them, hammering away on them, and there's no distinct sound and there's no meaning, music conveys meaning. I was talking to Mark McKay this week and he said with, with every movie, they fill it with music because music invokes emotion. It produces something and so it has meaning. It, it's, it's meaningless. If I get up here for the worship team and they hand me an instrument, I promise you guys will not be impressed. In the same way, just to, j- just to babble or use tongues like that, I think Paul is saying like, what, what is the point of this? Meaning has purpose. Our, 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 our uh, music has purpose. But what he also says is a bugle. You know what bugles are used for? They're used in war. They're used in war. They were used in the Civil War, but they were used for thousands of years in war. And, and there's distinct sound. So a bugle can be heard from up to miles away in good conditions. But soldiers had to be trained on the sounds of a bugle. So did the man blowing the bugle. And so there was different sounds that the bugle made. There was a sound for, for march forward and fight. There was a sound for retreat. There was a sound for get out of bed. And so he's saying if a, if a man just grabs a bugle and starts hammering away on it and making noises, every soldier is going to be thrown into disarray. They're going to be confused. They're not going to know what's going on. Because a bugle is meant to convey meaning and a message. This is what Paul is saying here. How do we... This is how I'll say this. I'm, I'm really not trying to be like sarcastic for the sake of sarcasm, but just to show that language has meaning, and that's why God gave it, okay? Fish, red, seven, dog, yesterday, brown, eight, quail, golf, you, track, yellow, Dr. Pepper, us, Snoop Dogg, floral. If I said that, everyone would go, what does that mean? That is, that is, that is meaningless, like, we don't know what you're saying. And in the same way for the saints, inside of the local church gathering, if someone is just babbling and doing that, I've been in these settings where someone has done that. As a non-Christian, I've been there, but as a Christian, I've done it. People are going, what is going on? And Paul later is saying that you're going to look kind of like just crazy people by doing this sort of stuff. And he's saying it's not building up. I'm out of time, and there's no way I'm going to get through all this. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to... I'm going to wrap this up today with saying this. I believe Paul is calling them to be selfless. Instead, they want to be selfish, to use these gifts for themselves, to use these gifts to bring themselves attention, to use these gifts to exalt themselves. If I haven't done a good enough job offending people, let me do this briefly to all groups of people. The way that we are selfish is by pursuing our comforts in all of life. We will, we, we will again, just like the story about the thiz thiz, I'll do something, including ripping my teeth out, if it brings me a level of comfort. You guys will go to the gym and exhaust yourselves and lay on the floor if it brings you a look or something you like. We will do things that we want to do as long as there's some benefit from us. Like, hang out with really obnoxious people that it's hard to love. If, if I said, hey, can you go hang out with these people over here that's really obnoxious and difficult to love, and you're like, no, but I was like, they're gonna give you iPads, really great wine, and lots of gifts. You'd be like, I'll do it. Why? Because we're selfish. And so what we want is something that, that, that gives us something. We, we want to be comfortable. And oftentimes some people say hard things to us because they're willing to make themselves uncomfortable. That's called being selfless. We, we reserve our tongue 
because we don't actually want to build people up. We, we get so consumed with our finances and where we're at and we're actually we're called to love God and love others. And, and what, the reason why we don't give and, and we're not financially generous is because we're actually selfish, greedy people. If we just want to be honest. To the married folk, let me offend the married people. I think the singles will be like, yeah, get them. You guys are coming next. But to, to the married people, I would say this. We create marriage idolatry to where what we can do is just focus in on our marriage and, and we can just protect everything. I got my date nights, I got this, and basically the only thing you're consumed by is your marriage. You no longer have friendships, you no longer uh, give, you no longer invest, you no longer pour in. It's just like you're just consumed by your marriage relationship. And, and the single folks and the younger people are like, please invest, please invest. And the reality is, is your life revolves around your marriage and here's the thing i've seen that play out and it doesn't play out well because god called you into a marriage to reflect that marriage to the rest of the world so it's not about just building the wall around your marriage to the single people we're selfish because what i commonly hear is i'm not getting this or i'm not getting this or i'm not getting this single people i love you you have a lot of time and i know that it doesn't feel like that but I promise you that you have more time to give. And oftentimes what single people are focused on is what they don't have. And so a lot of your anger, frustration, and everything like that is actually from your selfish wants not being met. And, and, and I would even go on to say that a lot of the language that I hear married, so married and single people now use, is, is all marriage around expectations. I deserve this. I should have been treated like this. This is unfair. This wasn't done to me. Every moment that someone doesn't show you grace is an opportunity for you to give grace because grace is about getting what you don't deserve. And then so as soon as someone offends you, you go, that's not fair. I don't deserve this. What we deserve is to be on the cross in Jesus' spot for all of our selfish motives and intention bearing the weight and penalty of God's just wrath for the, our selfishness. We're selfish to the core. What we don't deserve is to get everything that God gave us, his grace, his love, his acceptance, and Jesus' finished work on our behalf. And so every time we hear, I don't deserve this or this is unfair, it's a time and an opportunity for us to remember that we actually have in Christianity the one thing that we absolutely do not deserve and that wasn't fair for Jesus Christ, and he gave it to us. Our salvation wasn't fair for Christ. Our salvation is not something we deserve. And so each time that we fail to give grace, is an opportunity that we see more and more that we need grace. With our devotionals, with all that we do, what are we doing it for? Is it to build people up or is it just to feed ourselves? Expectations. That's where we're selfish. This is what I expect to be done for me. If this isn't getting done, I'm running away, I'm pulling out, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. Grace is this. God moves at us and toward us with the infiniteness of his love every moment of every day, not when we're moving towards him, but when we're even running away from him. Our call is to move towards people like that, not when they're being loving and gracious to us, but even when they have nothing to give us. In closing, I'm going to share this story because I think oftentimes this is what I hear. I want to build up. I want to use the gifts God's given me. I, I want to be a faithful saint to the body of Christ. I'm just feel inadequate. I don't know how to do that. Is oftentimes what we do is put our trust in the instrument. And here's what I mean. 
It's a fictional story, but there were four people that were, that, uh, that were five people. How many are in a string quartet? Is it five? Two violins, two violas, and a cello? Four? Whatever. Four. I'm hot, I'm done. We got this. There's a string, there was this string quartet. And, and what they did is they found the four best players from all around the world. And then what they actually did is brought them together because they had the best instruments made from the best wood that actually sold for several hundred thousands of dollars. And so they said, let's put this team together, let's bring them in and let's let them play for the audience with these instruments so they can be absolutely blown away. And, and, and so these people came together to play. They grabbed the instruments with the oohs and ahs of the people as they grabbed them and held them because people were so focused on these instruments that were hundreds of thousands of dollars. They picked them up and they played beautifully and people were in awe. And afterward, all four of them picked up their instruments and smashed them to the ground. And then later said that all of them were purchased at a pawn shop for almost nothing. So the, the, the point of the story, when the story is told is this, is the instrument the thing that we should be focused on or in whose hands the instrument lies? And many times what we need to realize is whether we're doing counseling with people, we're meeting with people, we're loving people, we're so focused on the instrument ourselves and not on in whose hand that we are held. We are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. I trust God can use all of us with wherever we're at, whatever state of brokenness, in the two weeks to come or if the freeze is for a month to come, that God has equipped us and given us what we need inside of his hands. A golf club inside of my hands is ugly. Inside of the hands of Tiger Woods, it's amazing. Same thing for us. We can be broken messes, but God has still called us to actively love and serve the church. And so I'm saying this in closing, that the way God sees you right now, hidden in Christ, is though you've lived a perfectly selfless life. Not because you are selfless, but because Christ was selfless in your place. He was invisible for 30 years, selflessly serving people. And so now when God looks at you who put your trust and faith in Jesus, he doesn't see your selfishness, he sees Christ's selflessness. But I'm challenging you guys and encouraging you guys at home or in here. It's time to grow up. It's time to serve, it's time to build up, it's time to get actively, consistently involved and serve the church family that God has called you to be a part of. Amen? That was weak. Amen? Okay, that's better. Whether you're lying or not, I'll take it. Okay. Two announcements. One, I'm gonna have Wally come up here. Two, I'm gonna let you guys know that I'm likely going to be out from preaching for at least a week, but maybe a couple weeks. I have surgery um, this next, this upcoming week. So uh, I'm thankful for that. Uh, it, it's been a horrific past few months, and so I, I'm scheduled for that. We're going to be transitioning into our Advent season, and so if you guys want to get ahead of your reading, this is what will be helpful. We're going to do a series titled Uncommon Gifts of Grace, and we're going to look at the way God's grace is given through uncommon gifts in the Old Testament, ultimately leading up to Christ. So read the story where Jacob wrestles with God in, in Genesis 32, because that's going to be the first one we're going to cover. So I, I love you guys. I will miss you guys. Um, I know the season ahead on freeze is difficult for us, and so here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have gospel communities that are going to meet in person until the 18th, and after that, we're, we're going to have to go back to Zoom. Hear this from me. This is more family talk right now. Sermon's over. Every part of me pushes back <laughs> to rules and stuff like that. I just want to be honest and say every part of me doesn't like it. I've been like that my whole life. 
I don't like it. And so what I want to do is when restrictions are put on me is push back. Because I think sometimes they're, they're, they're dumb. I think sometimes they're just annoying. And, but here's the reality. I'm going to faithfully do what's laid out for us. And I'm asking you guys to do the same. Because I don't want to, like Paul, put any hurdle or anything in front of my neighbors that's going to make them think that there's something I'm doing that's unloving or a hindrance to me sharing the gospel with them. I'm asking you guys to do the same thing. Die to yourself (laughs) with me. Die to whatever you think is right. Die to your, um, um, whatever it is, your political stances. Death to self is life to Christ. It's actually a good thing. Die to whatever it is, your preferences that you want with me, please. Because what we need is not to just stand hard on what we want. We need to stand hard on what it looks like to serve one another and preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another and to those that don't know Christ. If we're going to stand for something as a church family, let's stand for Christ. Let's stand for the gospel. Let's love him and love people well. You guys amen that?